It's the early morning hours of uh, Wednesday, October 2nd, 2002, seven weeks ago today, probably at about this time, Montreal time would have been four o'clock, so that probably is the time of death, although I won't know that until I get a report from the coroner's office. But sometime around now, seven weeks ago today, Barry walked for 20 minutes to a park where he hung himself from a tree. It's been seven weeks of um, learning about myself in a way that I never knew that I could. This is my second night in a new apartment. My third apartment in the last seven weeks. Fifteen years ago, my husband, Barry, walked to a park. It was a 20-minute walk, or so I was told. In the 15 years since then, I've thought about that walk hundreds of times. I've imagined what I'd say to him as he walked. I've woken up in cold sweats after dreaming I'd been with him as he turned the final corner into the park. I still wonder if he carried the rope with him or had already hidden it in the tree. Could I have talked him out of it? Could anyone? Was he scared as he walked? Did he see anybody? Did anyone see him? Barry's walk and life ended in the early morning of August 14th when he clambered up a maple tree next to a duck pond. He'd combed his hair, put on clean clothes, and been sure to put ID into the pocket of his shorts before he put the rope around his neck. He dropped, perhaps, maybe, with a little bit of relief and peace in his sad and imperfect heart. He dropped, though, that much is certain, and when he did, my own freefall began. like now today it's like every half an hour or something I literally can't believe it I cannot believe that my husband Barry who I've known since I was 19 would take some rope and hang himself from a tree because the pain was too much for him to bear. He didn't feel strong enough. He was a strong guy. Stubborn, and strong and determined. He loved nature, history, politics, and the world. He loved climbing mountains. He loved cats, all animals. He loved me, I think. I just cannot wrap my mind around it, and I do not know how I'm supposed to live from here on in. I really don't. 
Sometimes I just wish I'd been with him, so we didn't have to be alone at the end. I could have held his hand. I could have found some way of persuading him to live. But the wheels were already in motion by then, it turns out. The FedEx package had already been sent. At other points over the last 15 years, I've been so grateful that I wasn't there, that I wasn't the one who found him. I've counted myself lucky that I wasn't in the park, and until now, I've never found the courage to visit. In place of visiting the real park, I've just imagined what it's like. I've imagined a dark, lonely trek down quiet back streets with Barry's teeth clenched in determination until he got to a small, gloomy patch of grass next to a little pond where he'd stashed everything he'd need to end his life. My name's Don Hobus. I'm a resident of Rosemere, and we're standing across from City Hall um, to the, the uh, one side of City Hall is the public works and the fire department and the police department. And uh, a little further, there's a used to be a youth center, and the youth center was kind of important in this, in this story. I had gotten a dog a few months earlier, and I used to walk with the dog in front of City Hall and then down the path to the street, and I'd continue to the river, and it was a routine. We did this all the time. And it got to the point where I followed the dog, the dog didn't follow me. And this one morning, instead of turning to go in front of City Hall, he wanted to go straight. And he, he pulled me across the street into this park and over to this fence. And he was scratching and sniffing around the flowers. And I happened to look over my shoulder here and uh, saw this, this mannequin, what I thought was a mannequin, hanging in a tree and I, I think I even laughed and thought it's these crazy kids from the youth center they found a mannequin they've gone and got some clothes dressed it up and done done something silly that I would have done at the same age hang this mannequin in the tree scare the heck out of people and that was my reaction and then I noticed they are human legs hanging out of these shorts. And at that point, I just kicked in, grabbed the dog. So there wasn't shock or there wasn't really a reaction. I ran with the dog around to the front of the person, looked up at his face and thought, it's too late. I, you know, I, I thought well, I can go up the tree, maybe pull him out and revive him. And I looked and I said, I'm sorry, fella. It's, it's too late. There's nothing I can do for you. And then the next reaction was, I've got to get the police. I don't know, I've thought about it. Why didn't I react differently? Um, I, I think back, my, my father died when I was quite young. I was in the hospital for 16 months with him. Maybe I had gotten used to seeing death because I, I did see a lot of it. While he was in intensive care, there was a young man who had sideswiped the car driving a motorcycle. And while I was, I was like 17 years old watching this fellow, and I think he died in front of me maybe four or five times while I was visiting, and that shook me up. So, you know, by the time I was 40, I was an old pro or something. I don't know what. You know, you, you, you think sometimes, am I right? Am, you know, am I very callous? Uh, shouldn't, I, shouldn't I have not reacted differently? Uh, why wasn't I emotional over this? Uh, it just happened that I wasn't. He wasn't a guy who spent much time in the gray areas. As he walked, there was no wavering. He was gonna go all the way. 
of that much, I've always been certain. My mom and sister and friend went to the park after Barry's funeral, but I couldn't bring myself to go. At the time, I thought, there's no rush. I'll come back in a year when I'm ready. I couldn't do it that day, but I was sure I would make the trip back. But I didn't. 15 years have passed and I've never visited the park. I know about the maple trees and the ducks only because my mom and sister told me, and I've imagined the walk that took him there. I know it must have been the middle of the night, maybe 3 a.m. So I've imagined a dark, desolate, lonely 20 minutes, so quiet you could hear a pin drop, bleak and scary. He must have been so scared. Just like I am now, I'm scared to visit the park, scared to do the walk. And now that I'm here, a little bit excited too. Maybe it's just the adrenaline that comes with doing something scary. Barry and I did a partner bungee jump on our first wedding anniversary, and I find myself thinking about that. Adrenaline, fear, free falling. As my plane landed in Montreal yesterday, I felt closer to Barry than I had in a long time, and part of me is hoping I'll feel close to him in the park. If I do, this trip will have been worth it. I think maybe I'll be able to talk to Barry as I walk to his park. Maybe it's something, a little something, that we'll be doing together. I was thinking last night about grief, and that it's a very short word, one syllable. Doesn't seem like anywhere enough, really, to describe something like this. Something so big, something so complicated, something so lengthy it should have hundreds of syllables. But it doesn't, it just has one. Grief, kind of a dumb word, don't even like it. Seems like we should be able to come up with something better. We should be able to come up with a better way of explaining it, a better way of talking about it. A word that just would make more sense. Journeys require a few things, don't they? They require effort and planning. This walk, this journey to Montreal 15 years after my last visit, is requiring all that I have. But I'm doing it, and it's awful. Well, it will be awful, but at least it will be done. So we're here at um, Aunt Sue's house in Rosemere, Quebec, which is where uh, Barry was staying. Um, when he died. I'm going to uh, do the walk that Barry did to the park where he died. And I've been wanting to do it for a long time. So I'm just gonna follow the steps. Right away, I turn on to Remembrance Street. Remembrance. Memories wreaked havoc with my 30s. It's been easier to remember bad things than good because the happy, joyful memories are immensely painful. They make me think I must have got it all wrong. I've been robbed of my 20s, I sometimes think. The years from 19 to 31 have been taken from me. Each happy memory now ends in death. Logically, I know there were good times, lots of good times, but I can't bear to remember them and people haven't remembered those good times and shared them with me either. When someone dies by suicide, people react very differently than when someone dies another way. In the days after Barry died, people told me I was better off without him, or I should have known he was suicidal and it was my fault he was dead. No one told me what a great couple we were or how much we loved each other. No one said that he would want me to be happy or reminded me about how much fun our wedding was. Instead, they told me he kept vodka in a salad spinner and that he lied to me. They didn't want me to feel guilty or responsible, or maybe they didn't want to feel guilty or responsible. 
so they shared their memories of the tough times with Barry, and there were many. But we'd had such a great time too. Our 20s were full of friends and laughter. I just haven't been able to remember them. Remembrance Street. No one told me that his walk started here. It's um, November 10th. So 12 and a half weeks now. Uh, been having a really awful week. For the first time since Barry died, it's like the guilt and remorse and feeling of responsibility has taken over everything else. I used to think it was sadness and then anger and then guilt because I know I know what kind of a wife I was and I hadn't been able to feel guilty, but now I think I made the world's worst decision. I was thinking about breakups in general. My friends were talking about their breakups and... I mean, the general idea with the breakup is that it ends up being better for both people, that the relationship wasn't working, and that eventually both people will be better off. And I am not better off. I'm so much worse off. I can't make decisions. I can't pick a restaurant. I don't seem to be able to work. I can't concentrate. I don't want to pick up the phone. I don't like myself at all. And Barry is dead. And all of a sudden, I guess I'd been taking comfort before in the fact that, you know, other people go through difficult things and breakups and people die. And in some sense, that made me feel less weird or reminded me that there is a lot of painful stuff in the world. But um, I don't know. This week, mine just seems worse, more serious, more drastic, more horrible, more terminal. I just can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about anything. And I really miss feeling lighthearted. I used to feel lighthearted. I know I did. I can't remember it anymore. But I felt lighthearted all the time. I was a positive person. I enjoyed lots of different things. I liked the small things. There would be times where I'd just like be sitting around having just lighthearted times and discussions. And I really miss that. I feel like there's no lightheartedness left in my future. None. I'm never going to feel lighthearted again because how can I? Because every memory I have and every story I tell ends in death. It's horrible. So I just don't tell them anymore. I just let them rattle around in my brain because it's depressing to actually say them out loud and bring other people down. I keep walking. I passed the intersection of Remembrance and Sunnyside, another street name that means something to me and that meant something to him, but I don't know if he could read the street signs as he walked in the dark. Sunnyside was the street in Ottawa where we hung out a lot when we first met. His friends had an apartment there just by campus. Seeing the intersection made me smile because there have been so many coincidences and strange little moments since Barry left me, so I'm not at all surprised that there are more today. Another block or two, and I notice that I'm breathing carefully, exhaling, the way I learned to do in those first weeks and months when panic attacks and shock were making it hard to function. It's good, I suppose, that these techniques still come back when I need them, but my body is reminding me of how hard this is to do. I can't wait to get to the park. I want to run there, but I want to turn back too. Maybe I should turn back. No, I've flown a long way to be here. Aunt Sue is here, my mom has come too, so I keep walking. My name's Christine Payne, I'm Emma's mother. I have 
My husband and I, Roger and I, have three daughters. We live uh, in Northern Ontario, and so um, uh, she asked if she could bring Barry to meet us. And I think Emma must have been working in a, a, a summer job. And I went to the, I can't remember if it was just me or myself or my husband, but we went to the airport in Sudbury to pick him up. And there's this very blonde, very tanned uh, young man with a mohawk, an enormous mohawk, blonde hair sticking up. So we were a little surprised when we, when we met Barry. Uh, my name's Sue Quarles. I live in Rosemary, Quebec. Um, Barry is my nephew from, uh, through marriage, um, my husband's sister's son. Yeah, Barry and I seem to have a little, maybe because we we're both out of step, we had a pretty good relationship and he thought I was crazy enough that we could really commune together quite quite a bit and we came, we had him up north a few times and he was just a great guy, great sense of humor, we always had fun together, yes. Uh, I, I can't say that I ever felt that I really got to know him. We worked at, at um, at liking Barry. I think that's the honest truth. And, um, but we, at the end, we knew that the relationship, we knew that Emma was in pain and he was in pain and uh, we knew that they were in trouble. Um, I think, I think he was going through a lot of self-hate in those days and so Barry would he would try and cover things up with with the alcohol he always did I guess um, my sister-in-law said she never thought of Barry as being a negative person but you can cover up a lot when you've had a drink under your belt at 15 or 16 or 17 I know I can when I'm 76 so you know I, I I'm not as angry looking and uh, but the, but the hurt is still inside you and that's what the darn drinks do it, it, it is a band-aid so we talked about the fact that uh, things were not going well and uh, and I'm talking about um, Emma and I talked about not Barry and I and uh, I said well you know we sure could use some help at the lake have a we have a house or we had a house at Electrum North and no electricity no road thinking that you know that would be a good setting for him to come up and help my husband Jim and I to do some work around the place which we needed desperately and um, plus uh, we have in our house in Rosemary uh, you know we can play tennis and ride a bike and so when when they he did come he got got off the plane and um, I said, you know, you're good, and he said, yeah, I feel great, I'm looking forward to being here, and he seemed really pumped about being here. And I had said to him, look, I knew, I knew he had a drinking problem, he knew I knew I had seen him uh, on the side helping himself, unfortunately. So he, he knew I knew what we were getting into, the two of us, you know, I think it was very obvious that I was here to try and help him, but I said, 
but you gotta help yourself. You got to help yourself. The walk is much more public than I'd expected. It's down a main street with shops and restaurants and a chocolatier. They would have been closed when Barry walked here that night, but some cars must have passed him. Early morning workers may have been up. They must have been. I wish he'd passed a 24-hour subway and remembered how much he liked their meatball subs. Maybe he would have stopped to get one and then thought, hmm, maybe I'll head home. I could have another sub next weekend and the one after that. It's pretty busy for me this morning as I walk. I have to veer off course to get around a construction site at the library. A bulldozer was pulling up dirt, so I stepped off the sidewalk and towards the building, feeling almost dizzy with the heat and eagerness to get there, and a little panic about making sure I could get back to exactly where Barry had been walking. It gives me a sense of closeness walking where he did. session this week, Pete was telling a story about uh, Winnie the Pooh, when Winnie the Pooh goes into Rabbit's house and eats all the food and then he gains all the weight and tries to get back out the door, but he can't, he's stuck. And uh, I guess he gets Rabbit or Piglet or someone to stand outside and talk to him while, he's, while he gets unstuck, because uh, they can't get him out, so he just needs someone to keep him company and talk to him. And Pete, uh, my counsellor, I guess, is saying that in a way that's what his job is like, you know, you can't get unstuck any faster than nature allows you to and grief is a process that has a timeline attached to it and yeah you can do the work and yeah you can talk to people and try to stay sane and learn but you cannot speed it up although I was telling my friend Bryce that story and he said that he thought that it that Winnie the Pooh story um in the end the friends actually all take hold of his arms and pull him through so that actually makes the story even better because friends and family do pull you through and you pull yourself through but it's turning me into a different kind of person I just look in my eyes and it just seems that it's a different person looking back at me and there's some bits of the old person that I really miss and there's some bits of the new me that I know are probably good things and I'm learning and probably stronger and wiser God, I miss, I miss feeling normal. All journeys are circuitous. The journey Barry and I traveled together for 12 years, his personal journey too. Both had highs and lows, adventures and mishaps. I think now about Barry's adoption, alcoholism and shame. He didn't share his struggles with me, I wish he had. But now I can look back and see them in his eyes. There were hopeful moments when he was so excited about his life, shameful moments when he lied and covered up. And my grief journey has been full of adventures and mishaps too. Whole years so riddled with guilt that I considered myself a murderer. Other years when my anger made it hard to breathe. How could he do this to me, to his mom, to all of us? Dark, sad stretches when I felt so low that I actually could understand what Barry had chosen. And uproarious laughter during the larger than life good times as friends held me close. I wonder if he was sober when he made this walk. Now I think he was, and I wonder if he was scared or angry. Now I'm thinking, maybe not angry, maybe just relieved? Scared, yeah, he must have been. But I think he was also just ready to end his own pain, and a few minutes of physical pain wouldn't have daunted him. So the weekend that he decided to do what he was going to do, and you could see it building up and building up, um, 
we had no idea what he was that something was going on we just felt we had to keep him busy as much as as possible we wanted to cut some trees up north and everything and we were getting ready to go to Tromla and um, Barry says oh I gotta go and mail something do you mind you know no so he goes off in his bike and that's what he did a few things he mailed the journal which I had no idea he was writing to Emma I had fl uh, so I was on my way back to Kosovo from Canada and stopping off in London to to see Emma and she and I had a I guess a teary um, evening but a, a, a good evening if, if that a good evening together he um he got Angela's ashes, the, the video, which is extremely sad. The guy blows himself up at the end, you know, and I mean, uh, we, weren't, we weren't too pleased to watch that, not knowing what was coming. And then in the morning, she went to the gym. He did give me a hug, but it was kind of very brisk. As she came back from the gym, she, it was an upstairs apartment, she picked up the mail at the door downstairs and there was the package. Then, uh, then we all go to bed and the next thing I know, a six o'clock phone call comes from uh, Christine. She realized the implications of the package and, uh, um, and I made the call here to, to Sue. Sue, where is Barry? What do you mean, where's Barry? Because of course the time difference, it was noon for us, but it was, I guess, less than it was 6 a.m. I think here when we made the call and um, said, uh, is Barry okay? And he said, yeah, he's in bed. I, anyway, I just flew out of bed because I knew, I knew there was a problem. So I looked and of course he's not there and I ran downstairs and I said, call the police. Um, I don't know what else I said. She, she remembers, I don't remember. I was just like frantic. She said to me, um, we're, gonna, we're calling the police and you call a doctor for Emma. Oh my God. So, <clears throat> this young policeman who was new to the force and of course I just went ballistic, I guess, whatever the words are. And um, I said, he's out there. You gotta go and find him. Madame, Madame, assis-toi, assis-toi. It's okay, it's okay. And I, I said, no, he's out there. You've got to go and find him. Well, of course, they'd already found him. You know, Don had already done his job. You know. And then Jim called. Sue's husband called. And I answered the phone. And he said that they had found Barry. And, uh, and I remember saying, is, but he didn't say he was dead. And, and I, so I remember saying, is it all over? And he said, yes, it's all over. And, um, and Emma was listening, so she heard me say that and she heard the response. And then, of course, she collapsed. And uh, I took her on, onto her bed. And I... <laughs> I, I, she was shaking so I wrapped her in a duvet and held her 
And it was a long time since I'd done that. At the beginning, when I imagined and dreamed about this walk, I thought I'd plead with him to not go through with the plan he had by then, put firmly in motion. Later, I thought I wouldn't plead or cry or even talk. I'd just hold his hand so he wouldn't be alone. I wish he'd had some company on the walk. And suddenly, here I am, taking a right into the park. It's beautiful. Not at all what I expected. White painted fence, red flowers, ducks and swans out enjoying the sunshine, and a fountain. Why hasn't anyone mentioned the fountain to me? I wonder. I'm unreasonably glad to see and hear it here. I check with Don. Was this fountain here 15 years ago? Yes, he says. Does it run during the night? Yes, Don tells me. It runs 24 hours. I'm so glad. Instead of my imagined darkness and silence, Barry had some company at the end. The sound of the fountain is peaceful, and he's not far from the road. He wasn't really alone. I see now that he chose this spot very carefully. He loved ducks. He used to dream he was a duck. A few times, Barry woke up quacking and described his dream to me, and I was so jealous. I have never been anyone other than myself in my dreams. Okay, sometimes I'm a superhero version of myself, but I've never been another thing altogether. So the duck pond makes sense. But now that I'm here, I see that this wasn't just about the ducks. It was about making the best decision he could about how to end his life without traumatizing others. He wasn't with me in the UK. He walked far from his Aunt Sue's house. He found a park right across the street from the police station and a tree far enough from the road to not be visible from the road, but also not tucked so far away that he would simply go missing. I couldn't wait to get there to see and touch the tree. And if he really was okay at the end of his journey, then maybe I can really be okay at the end of mine. I will accept my failings and celebrate my happy memories. If he did, surely I can too. Before, I thought that I'd get to the park and somehow see and touch Barry, but then I got there and I didn't see him. I did tuck a little bit of the bark into my soggy Kleenex, and I did love the sound of the fountain, and it was good to lean against the trunk and breathe. I congratulated myself a little bit on being here, and then I looked up, looked around. It feels really good to be here. I actually don't want to leave. I found myself wishing it was nearby so I could come every day. You know, it's really pretty and it is really peaceful. And I thought I might feel some sense of closeness to him. Like I was racing here thinking I'm going to be with Barry and that's not really how it actually felt. Um, but it did feel peaceful, I guess. The journey, Barry's life journey, wasn't one he talked about with me, with anyone really. He managed and medicated his pain and his walk was long, with some joyful, wonderful moments in between. At his funeral, his best friend, Gord, recounted a camping trip we'd taken to Whistler five or six years earlier. Our car broke down in the middle of British Columbia Sea to Sky Highway. Gord asked Barry why he hadn't mentioned that the car wasn't driving properly and Barry replied, yeah, I knew it was fucked, but I didn't want to worry you guys. I just wanted to have fun camping. Now it seems that Barry always knew he was in trouble. He just didn't want to worry us. When I imagine it, there's no one in it. It's just like this stark, lonely, functional place. But of course it's not. It's gorgeous and busy and lots of laughter and, and the beautiful fountain. 
So it's good. I'm really glad I came. Really glad I want to come tomorrow. <laughs> I wish I could come. I wish it was something I could come to all the time.